0: I'm Lawrence Carroll, and welcome to Two Question Tuesday. I'm the author of ETFs for the long run, Dividend Stocks for Dummies, and a contributor to Forbes.com and Barron's. Each week on Two Question Tuesday, we randomly pick and answer two questions from clients of Focused Wealth Management. This week's questions will be answered by Phil D'Angelo, the Managing Director of Focused Wealth, and Michael Passante, the firm's Director of Financial Planning. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, guys. you guys. You ready? You awake this morning? Um, okay, the 2023 stock market rally is under pressure due to hotter than forecast inflation numbers. After posting its fourth straight losing week, and that was the worst week since September, the Dow Jones Industrial Average has given up all of this year's gains and the S&P is close behind. But there's another force in play in the second longest series of weekly declines since May, and that's high valuations. There is the PEG or PEG ratio, the market's price earnings multiple divided by its forecast growth rate. The higher it is, the more expensive shares are. The indicator is at 1.8 based on longer-term estimates, and this strikes many as ominous. The increasingly slow growth expected in the S&P 500 earnings shows equities are as richly priced as they've been in almost three decades of data. Bloomberg says, based on long-term profit forecasts, the S&P 500 is roughly 20% more expensive than it ever was during the internet bubble, and Wall Street strategists predict a correction within the next three months. However, the PEG ratio isn't a great timing tool. The ratio peaked in 2009 and 2016, neither of which proved an immediate death now for the bulls. So the first question is, what do you think about stock valuations at this time? Well, I don't think
1: valuation or, or one particular valuation metric on a standalone basis should realistically be analyzed and taken as the one and only thing that you should look at when taking into consideration where the market's at and or where they're going. So realistically, from an earnings standpoint, for the first quarter of this year, we did see earnings contraction. But it wasn't necessarily as bad as anticipated and or forecast. So I think where you're at right now is in this land of expectation versus reality, where you're going to have a lot of back and forth. A number of companies set guidance appropriately, and they were able to actually exceed what those estimates actually were. When they reported their real numbers, because ultimately, at the end of the day, you're looking at it in a scenario where the slowdown, at least in the fourth quarter of this year, wasn't necessarily as bad as anticipated because we've gotten some really solid first quarter GDP numbers. What else is I, a little bit ironic is the fact that, you know, we kind of hit home about this a lot in the fall. The market is realistically following the four-year presidential cycle almost to a T. It's almost alarming in terms of how it can basically break from some of the fundamental that valuation metrics at times and kind of look at, on a you know differential basis, <laughs> the seasonality metrics. And the second half of uh, February and the beginning of March tend to be a little bit more negative on the seasonal standpoint. From a pure valuation standpoint, I think valuations are elevated, but they're not significantly alarming. The one real problem that I contend with is that you have to look at all these different asset classes based off of what they are. And you don't see growth rates running away in the United States or really almost anywhere around the world. So As growth kind of stagnates a little bit, having higher valuations doesn't necessarily bode well for the future, potentially, of stocks unless growth starts to reaccelerate, especially when the safest security in the world, which is the US Treasury bond, is going to pay you 4.7 to 5.1% to own it. So stocks are going to have a really difficult time making an extreme amount of headway to the upside. If growth continues to decelerate and or moves you know, south of 2% toward a zero bound, first quarter growth has the potential to surprise to the upside on some of the data points that we've seen except for this durable goods order that we got on Monday morning. But you know, when you look at different asset classes, to be parked in US treasuries and making 5% isn't necessarily a bad thing without an extreme level of volatility with where valuations for the overall market stand right now and earnings decelerating.
2: Yeah. And, and look, I mean, we said it on this program many times, uh, you were up 8% on the S&P 500, almost 9%, right? Uh, by mid-February, you weren't going to have you know 9% times 12, 12 months of returns this year. It's just not that type of year. Do we see a bounce back? Surely. I mean, the S&P year-to-date is still up around you know 4%, something like that this morning. Um, and, uh, you know, we're off to a good start of the year and you weren't, you know, you had to give some gains back and you're getting into March, which as Michael points out, it's typically a little tough. And then the summer months, which are tough. So I would look at a, a real acceleration in the third and fourth quarter, uh, certainly to where you do have a rebound this year, but, um, you were not going to, you know, be on tear to have a 30 or 40% year. Like you looked like you were out of the gate. It's just not, not that type of market.
0: Um let me ask you a follow up there. You said 5% on the um, bonds, Mike. Which bonds are we talking about?
1: A lot of short-term treasuries between 6 month and 1 year are yielding a little bit north of 5% as of right now. I mean, you're not going to get paid the full 5% for owning it for 6 months. That's annualized. So, I mean, but uh, you know, those yields are really solid on the short end of the treasury curve. Yeah, and if you if you go a little bit farther out on the risk risk spectrum into various areas of corporates, it's a little higher than that. I still think it's a little early maybe to wade into corporates. I think you want to wait for the earnings declines to stop, but I, I, I don't think that's a bad spot to look.
2: And, you yeah. know, look, the misnomer here, too, is that stocks, right, um, can eventually do well with rates at where they're at. I mean, we've had, you know, decades where the Fed funds was at three to four percent, right, and, uh, and you know moving up, and rates were a lot higher, and stocks did very well. So, you know, everyone, uh, you got the the uh, Mike Wilsons and Morgan Stanley's of the world, you know, calling for if we don't hold these levels, we're going to go down to three thousand on the S and P five hundred uh, because of rates, and you got that hot, you know, uh, number on last week, uh, which was inflationary. But if you look at the trajectory, it's still headed downwards. Inflation looks to be under control, um, but it does take time, right? It takes time to rifle through the system and markets can stay higher with higher interest rates for the right reasons. And I, I think that it's gonna take some time to realize that, but once that aha moment comes this year, that's when we'll have that rally that erases last year's losses.
0: And the follow-up, um, Mike, you were talking about the political, political calendar. So what is that? You want, the president wants to have his recession the year before the election, so that by the time the election year comes around, you're in recovery and everybody's happy?
1: Yeah, you generally have a pretty poor year. The second year of presidential returns is the worst, and the bottom tends to occur right before the midterm election, somewhere in October. And you, you, you generally trade higher from that October period up until May the following year, and the third year of the presidential cycle, you see vastly positive returns across the board, and it's the best of those four years. Um, You actually see somewhat worse performance in the second year of a first-term presidency. So you're seeing a lot of volatility associated with this. And when you have a lot of negativity, we, we showed this chart back in September or October, And, I I mean, it's kind of shocking to where we are right now when you look back in hindsight. Um, When the markets traded as low as they had up until that September-October period going back into 2022, there had never been a period where the markets continued to trade lower from october slash november through May of the following year. And right now it appears that we're on that trajectory because that's when the low of the markets actually occurred. But it's hard to believe that we're off to the races without growth rates really reigniting to the upside.
0: Okay. Um, Where did I lose my question? Okay. Over the past week, we've seen dramatic weather bring snow, torrential rains, and flash floods to Los Angeles and the rest of California. And now the snow front is moving across the country. Texas, Oklahoma, and Kansas are expected to see extreme snow this week, and other regions may as well. So do you think this storm will have severe repercussions for the economy?
2: No, I mean, if you look at where gas prices were, right, and we're a big believer in markets call futures, and I mean, gas has just gotten slammed on the year. It was about a a high of 8 to 10, and it's down in the twos now. Yeah, it's up 5% today, something like that. But uh, it's just too little, too late. Uh, these places did need water; they just didn't need it that badly, um, all at once. Obviously, but I think it was a very, very mild winter compared to what it could have been, especially in light of, you know, the situation overseas as well. So, um, uh, when you look at this environmental damage that's being done, I really think um, a lot of markets have priced that in, especially in the insurers and reinsurer markets. So. You know, it is a it is a market based event in terms of calamities, right? That people have to figure on, and and especially the insurers and reinsurers have to figure out, um, and they're pretty good at that right now. Uh, unfortunately, right? So um, you know, these, I think when you look at global warming, these are definitely all uh, impacts of that, uh, especially the amounts, right? When you have have gone with droughts for so long, and then you know the, you just can't handle the water, and then if you look at the bad policies, uh, that prevents states from saving this water, Larry, as you pointed out earlier, uh, it just becomes really uh, tough to deal with. But um, I think over time, uh, this is is priced into the markets and and baked into the cake, as they say.
0: What about like lost jobs, lost work revenues, companies losing revenues because people can't get out to the stores or whatever the snow? And um, because of the damage, having to re spend more money to fix things i mean is that going to have any yeah, effect yeah i mean first California of all we're so spend, huge
2: it's again, such a huge
0: economy a huge economy
2: but first of all look at the ability now to work from home right we all over the pandemic uh gained great uh capabilities from working remotely so you know if you can't get it out it's not like it used to be uh in terms of spending yeah that that comes to a halt i mean you can't even get amazon trucks right out in that type of weather um but i over time uh that is a you know a healable uh, piece of damage that uh will get you know will overcome and uh while california is a huge economy um i think that you don't have you know these long-term effects from storms like this uh that you used to have right it seems like we clean up things quicker uh, we have the capability to get things moving quicker and that and that's what's happening
1: yeah, I mean, a lot of times these storms tend to be short-term negatives, but longer-term positives as you know, you see some of these reconstruction events kind of take place. And I know California has a big economy, but and I mean, I'm a little bit more tied into there myself personally with my parents living there, but Hurricane Ian down in Southwest Florida didn't really destroy GDP growth going yeah, into yeah. the fall of last year. So, I mean, it, it tends to be somewhat a little bit more stimulative sometimes as bad as it is because there's got to be a lot of rebuilding efforts that go along with it. The one negative problem that you could get from it is, I mean, depending on what you need in order to rebuild, it can be a little bit inflationary. So that's not- Especially
2: insurance premiums, right? Like, So while the reinsurers have this handled, I mean, guys, to trying to get you know flood insurance in some of those areas, or you know, even in California, trying to get fire now. You know, these are are heavily government subsidized. Which brings the question: like, yeah, these ta- states right might be tax free, but at what expense the overall federal taxpayer, right?
1: Yeah, because a lot of those premiums have significantly increased over the course of the last few years in a lot of different areas and metrics. So that's definitely a negative because the consumer has less you know discretionary spending to actually on. Un- go through. But ultimately, at the end of the day, that's something that, you know, it doesn't have as negative of a GDP drag as it had, you know, I would probably say 10 or 15 years ago.
2: Is the federal taxpayer subsidizing some of these tax-free states?
1: Does that mean larger
0: budget deficits? That's a completely different question. Um, Okay. Thanks, guys. That was great. And if you'd like to submit a question, send it to our email address, which is question at com, and we'll be back next week.